This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for January 18th, 2018, the A House is Not a Whole edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm in Washington, D.C. in Slate's D.C. studios. Joining me from a studio in Manhattan, New York State, is John Dickerson of CBS This Morning. Howdy, John. Hey, David. And from uh, Heidi Hole in New Haven is Emily Bazelon of The New York Times Magazine. Hello, Emily. Hello, David. Hello, John. Hi, Emily. On this week's GabFest, tomorrow is the deadline for passing a spending bill to avert a government shutdown. There are so many moving pieces as we are taping here on Thursday morning. Can Republicans find a compromise that keeps their hardliners satisfied, yet wins enough Senate Democrats to prevent shutdown and that President Trump will sign? Then what do we do about the fact that President Trump is a racist? We will talk about the shithole, shithouse controversy. Then we'll try to make sense of the Aziz Ansari mess. And we're not even going to discuss, we're not even going to talk about the various porn stars who were paid hush money by the president before the election. Plus, uh, we will have cocktail chatter. And before we get to the show, I have a very exciting announcement. We have a live GabFest coming up in Portland, Oregon on March 21st. We're going to be at Revolution Hall in Portland. Tickets are going on sale today for Slate Plus members this afternoon, Thursday. They'll be available to the general public on Friday. You can go to slate.com slash live for details and tickets. Portland, Oregon, March 21st, Revolution Hall. That is going to be our first show in Portland. Love Portland. Can't wait to get back there and do a show there. We will see you in Portland. Go to slate.com slash live for tickets. Absent a new budget deal, the government will go into partial shutdown on Friday night, about 36 hours from now, from when we're taping. There's been an enormous swirl of action over the looming shutdown in the past week. Most of it, or much of it, sort of uh, blossoming, clouding out of the meeting where President Trump blew up a potential bipartisan compromise over uh, DACA over the Dreamers with racist uh, cursing and a wide swing to the right on immigration. As we are taping here on Thursday morning, there seems to be movement, at least in the House Republican caucus, toward a short-term bill that would kick uh, kick this big, big a big uh, spending decision forward another 30 days or a couple months that would reauthorize CHIP, the Children's Health Care Program that has been allowed to expire. It would reauthorize that for six years. That's a sweetener to get Democrats to vote for it and do nothing about immigration or certainly do nothing to fix the DACA crisis that Democrats are, are very upset about. Lots of people are very upset about. The House will vote if Republicans can hold a majority in the House. Then the question will be if the Republicans can get the nine Democratic senators they would need to prevent a Democratic filibuster of the bill. So, John, there's so much going on. There's so much pinball being played here. Um, how, what is it? First of all, is my description at least roughly accurate to to the moment or something happened since i came into the studio that i don't even know about i can't tell whether it's pinball or pachinko which um i never actually play i only played pachinko in like the basements of friends houses and it was always broken i don't know what pachinko is enlighten me please. it's an upright it's an upright it basically take a pinball machine turn it upright make it a lot smaller and with lots more little pins. And I think you basically drop a ball in and it bounces around. Again, I never played it in a form where it was working. And so what would happen is the ball would bounce around and go to a variety of places that would give you a score or not a score or something. And then we'd all decide that it was really boring and we'd move on. Exactly. But the point is... That, that sounds like how I feel about these... What is this, a budget negotiation? Yeah. Which is just wake me up when it's over. Well, what's interesting, of course, about this budget negotiation or lack of negotiation 
that we should note is that it's the first government um, funding shutdown since 2013, but the very first one where you've had unified government. So the Republicans run the whole show here, Congress and White House. So that does make it a little bit different. But to your point, David, it's moving under our feet on Thursday. You know, as you mentioned, the Child's Health Insurance Program, which funds nine the health care for nine million children of the working poor. The president tweeted and said CHIP should be part of a long-term solution, not a 30-day short-term extension. So the president is now, as he has been throughout this entire process, throwing a monkey wrench into the into the situation. I mean, and and by the situation, I should we should just mention that what we've got here is both the question of funding, and then we've got the question of the fix to the DACA program. They've been married because Democrats have said we're not going to vote to keep the government open if you don't give us a permanent solution on DACA. That also seems to be very much in the air. But the president has after saying last week that he would take whatever bipartisan solution was put before him, uh, then saw a bipartisan solution put together by Lindsey Graham and Dick Durbin, and there were others uh, a part of that process as well, looked at it, said it was horrible. So um, it's a it's a kind of a sloshing mess. And it, where we are, it seems to me, on Thursday is basically both parties are deciding who's going to pay the political price if there is an actual shutdown. Democrats, some of them want to take this all the way to the end. Um, have a shutdown and say, well, it was all because of the, the Republicans and the way they wanted to treat these dreamers. Um, and then Republicans hope that if Democrats do that, they'll pay the penalty. Um, or everybody will decide, you know what, let's just kick this down the, the road for 30 days and, and we'll we'll go back to this debate uh, with a little more time. Doesn't the confusion among Trump, the House uh, Freedom Caucus, i.e. Mark Meadows and the leadership and whoever else that's swirling around suggests that it will be easier for Democrats to blame a shutdown on the Republicans. I mean, if they can't agree that chip is their, forgive me, bargaining chip, I don't like that seemed to me to take away their whole strategy. You mean Trump's, the Trump's tweet, Trump by tweeting that we shouldn't even have chip in this bill basically gave Democrats cover to say even the president, even the Republican president doesn't believe this should be in the bill. Of course, we're not going to vote for it. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's a good, uh, potentially a good point. Um, now, it depends what the how the option is ultimately framed by whoever does the framing these days. By the way, because you know what's uh, what's interesting in our current world is what who determines what the framing is for a public discussion of a of an issue. The president in a traditional um, system would have some control, but the, but also a lot of, a lot of lack of control. We certainly saw president Obama try to frame things and, and then it didn't work out for him. One of the things he was successfully able to do though, is, was put Republicans on the defensive on these funding measures, particularly when it came to the, to the debt ceiling, but also the last time there was a shutdown, putting pressure on Republicans and, and, and having those, some of the blame fall on them. We have a president now who basically looks at the polling of his most ardent supporters and follows those wins, if that's not mixing a metaphor too much. And so that changes the kind of response and behavior here. Um, and what we but, but what I'm sort of struck by on Thursday is we have a situation in which the president has sent multiple and conflicting signals on immigration. He's now sending in conflicting signals on this children's health insurance program. You have his chief of staff talking to Brett Baer Wednesday evening saying essentially the president was uninformed. That was the chief of staff's point uh, word, I should say, um, about uh, uh, and he also talked to some leaders on the Hill in which so I'm kind of enjamming those two things he said, but said essentially the president was uninformed about some insurance, uh, some immigration stuff when he talked on the campaign trail and that he has evolved. And then you have Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader in the Senate, saying we're trying to put together a deal on DACA, but we don't know where the president is. So once he comes up with something, we'll stop spinning our wheels, which is what McConnell said. So there's a lot of confusion and it's being sown by the president. Um, and so that's kind of that's another part of this uh, moment. we're in. So, Emily, there has been a stretch of monstrousness on immigration over the past several weeks. Uh, we have had the denial or the re revocation of temporary protected status for Haitians, uh, Salvadorans, I think Hondurans as well. Hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, yesterday came news of the denial of the right to, of Haitians to get H-2 visas, which allow them to do certain kinds of relatively low-wage work temporarily in the United States. There's a new crackdown on immigrants coming in Northern California and a, a, a strike against sanctuary cities. There's the deportation of a bunch of undocumented residents who have lived decades of upstanding, admirable 
crime-free lives in the United States and who seem to be targeted because they are outspoken uh, outspoken people. Um, often these people also have American children. Um, and of course, we have the DACA expiration looming. Yet, I ask you as a political, so it is clear, I, I, as, a, as a human being, as a citizen of the United States, I am ashamed and dismayed by what I see uh, the federal government doing on immigration these days. As a political matter, do you think, Emily, that that going to the wall on DACA is a good decision for Democrats to make? Well, I'm not sure. I mean, so two things. One is, um, you know, I think it's Darlind in Vox who pointed out that deportations have actually slowed down during the Trump administration because what's happening is that instead of focusing on the people who are easiest to yank out of the country with as least as little process as possible. There are all these internal um, detention and deportation cases that are clogging the immigration courts because there are no priorities anymore. And um, so many people are vulnerable. And so one of the like awful twists of the revocation of temporary protected status you were just talking about and the potential adding of the dreamers is that these people will lose their jobs. They'll, you know, be stuck in this kind of gray area of being here undocumented without protection, but they won't actually um, be any easy. Like the, Already there are so many people who the administration is trying to deport that it's sort of meaningless from the point of view of actually bringing numbers down. In terms of the politics, I mean, I was struck by a piece that Matt, I read of Matt Iglesias's this morning, just making the point that I think is so crucial that the way to be Trump is on policy, that the most unpopular aspects of the administration are the tax cuts and, you know, Ryan Zinke, the Secretary of the Interior, raising fees for national parks, the things that affect everyone. And what Matt was arguing, and I agree with this, is that it's really important to call Trump out for being a racist and not hesitate to do that. At the same time, for some white Americans, that is not enough reason to vote against him. And there is also a really strong argument to be made that the administration's policies are not populist. They're not what Trump promised when he ran. They're the kind of standard GOP plutocratic benefit the wealthy agenda. And that if you're trying to appeal to, you know, m white Americans who live in mostly white parts of the country, that's probably the smarter electoral strategy. And then that seems like CHIP is maybe the better political argument than living or dying on DACA, even though my heart goes out to the DACA recipients. So you say you think Democrats should vote for CHIP? You mean in this short-term spending yeah. bill? I was thinking that, like, maybe they should make an argument for political um, benefit that keeping the government open for 30 days in return for CHIP was worth it and kind of punt DACA. There's no um, reason the Republicans there, – there's no reason not to vote for a clean CHIP bill. Everyone says they support it. Like there's no yes, absolutely exactly. no reason to attach it to anything else. Just no, I exactly. Really I think good. that's a strong argument. And also the fact that Trump totally muddied the waters this morning makes me, as I was saying earlier, it just makes me think that now Democrats have covered and make exactly the argument you just made, David. Yeah, it's worth pointing out that the Republicans are um, we'll see how this all plays on the end, but potentially cleverly using chip as a bargain. They're basically giving they're pretending to give Democrats something that everybody says they want to support. So, in other words, um, making it look like it's a it's a win for Democrats when it's uh, there are a lot of Republicans who want to keep the program going too. Um, right, it's not actually a concession, not a concession. to Democrats. Thank to you. Chip. Yeah, that's what I mean. Right, but I guess it's the question is that the, will it be perceived that way? So. Sure. I mean, there's another yeah. argument. Sorry, I want to ask you guys about this argument. So the other argument about DACA, though, is that like vast majority of Americans do not think we should be deporting the dreamers. And DACA is a really good way to make an argument about the benefits of immigration. And maybe the longer term benefits of that for Democrats and liberals are more important than these short term political questions about who's going to get blamed for the government shutdown. Right. That like Americans more Americans need to understand how beneficial immigration is for the economy. Not every single immigrant, every single time. We can talk about the composition, but like that that basic truth needs to be more widely shared and that this is an opportunity to do that. And so Democrats should not back off of DACA this time. What do you guys think about that? Isn't it easier to make the case that the reason they shouldn't back off DACA is to make the Republicans and the president look 
hard hearted about people who had no control over their legal status because they were brought here as kids. And because you have some Republicans who feel like it would be hard hearted to do that to them, too. Uh, and you can throw in the fact that even though Republican leaders say they want to do this, they're, they seem incapable of doing it, even though they have unified government. And to make the emotional appeal about the hard heartedness rather than the intellectual appeal of the benefits of immigration, because it seems to me that emotion always trumps a policy discussion when you're in these moments of of political, you know, if you're if you're choosing to be a person who is interested in democratic strategy. It is, it, it's not clear to me. There is obviously an enormous wave coming for Democrats in 2018, barring something really strange happening. Trump is so unpopular. Republicans are so unpopular. There's so much dissatisfaction with with what's been going on. Democrats are so galvanized that it really isn't clear to me that a shutdown affects it one way or another. Yeah. I mean, it would have to it's, go. It would have right. to go really cockeyed for for I think anyone to for Democrats to really pay a huge price on it. I, I think that, that that's undoubtedly the sensible thing to say. Although I do think that that this does add a slightly different element, which is Republicans are in control of everything. I understand that what the Democrats are doing here and they need, you know, and they need nine or more votes in the Senate because there are some Republicans who say they might not vote for a for a continuing resolution. Um, but I so but I do think it at at some later date, Democrats would be able possibly to weaponize this in addition to all the other things, which include using the president to run against Republicans, would be able to say, hey, you, you guys had control and you couldn't get this dealt with. Um, this president who was who ran as the best negotiator on the planet couldn't get a deal, had a deal, couldn't bring it to closure. And who do we quote for that? Lindsey Graham, right. who says we had a deal, closed the deal, Mr. President, and he couldn't do it. So I think, you know, it's a it's a it's a few more sprinkles on their uh, case. Do, do you guys think that that deal, the Graham, Durbin, Durbin. Gardner flake deal that that was the president seemed to have blown up do you think that deal is is totally dead john or is it like slightly dead well i don't know it's a really interesting question because so on the one hand you could say this is a result of the fact that the president takes the impression of the last person he's exactly with. And there's yes been a lot of 100%. this there's been a lot of this and we saw it during the campaign and so forth and so on so that's that's interesting he boasted about it repeatedly on the campaign, how he was going to solve some of these thorny problems through the talents of his own negotiation. And if he merely takes the impression of the last person he's with, that's not being a negotiator. That's being a weather vane, if I can. Weather vanes don't take impressions, but you know what I mean. Now, what's interesting to me about this is that John Kelly, who in his interview with Brett Baer, apparently um, pricked the president's ire by suggesting that the president had evolved on immigration and that he was somewhat uneducated and that he was going through the process of learning that governing is different than campaigning. Apparently, the president didn't like to hear that. But one thing Kelly did say, uh, specifically on the difference between the president who seemed to be in in support of the Graham, Flake, Gardner, Durbin bill, but then changed his mind, Kelly said, this is the result of the news of the system I've put in place in the White House, which is to put in information in front of the president and then let him make a decision. And so the information that he put in front of the president was the viewpoint of uh, Congressman Goodlatte in the Senate, in the House and Tom Cotton in the Senate, more more conservative hardliners. So Kelly's arguing that this change of mind was not the capricious whims of, a, of an unguided president, but the successful payoff of a more thorough White House system, which puts all the information in front of him. And once he had the full picture, he made the judicious decision that, that Graham Durbin was no good. The whole notion that John Kelly has whipped the White House into shape is now at stake in this argument, as well as whether this represents the way this particular idiosyncratic president plays. And how can they make this sort of argument for judicious decision making as we're having this whiplash between what Kelly said yesterday, which was by the way, totally patronizing, right? I mean, talking about how someone's views have evolved, especially I don't know, to me, I just hear all the like all the resonance of the idea that various Supreme Court justices who moved, you know, from conservative to more moderate or liberal positions somehow like became more evolved, i.e. more sophisticated, better specimens of their human species. I mean, <laughs> no wonder Trump, who is like so thin skinned about any suggestion that he's not Mr. Brilliant, genius, very stable, reacted in a rage about that. But then I just can't see how you can like pretend that's not happening and, and imagine that, you know, Kelly is leading some march toward like 
great discipline and organization. Yeah. Well, you know, and the thing is, I mean, they, it's too late now because the, the, the president doesn't want to admit this, but this happens to every president. They come in, they learned a bunch of stuff in the campaign that was totally separate from the way a White House works. And all presidents say, gee, it's harder than I thought. Uh, I'm more constrained than I thought. This is like a normal thing in American, but but this but this president obviously you don't no boss wants to hear that somebody who works for them say well you know he didn't quite have it right the first time. Nevertheless, we are at the at a at a pass here where when the Senate Majority Leader says we're spinning our wheels because we don't want what the president wants, and every time we try and put something together that the president wants, he shoots it down. I mean, that's a problem. It happened. It certainly was a big problem with health care. You remember when they had a health care deal and then the president said, well, this is too mean. Um, And then at various other times, he moved the goalposts on whether he wanted Obamacare totally gone or what. It's a real challenge for Republicans in Congress trying to actually carry out what the president wants that he keeps shifting the story. They must be so frustrated, too, because in this case, it really just seems like we're talking about words and smoke and mirrors that like everybody understands that there isn't going to be a wall as in a physical barrier across the border. Like that's crazy. And it's going to be some trumped up notion of border security that Trump and some Republicans are going to get to call a wall and the Democrats are going to say, no, it's not a wall. It's just like security. And and so it seems as if like on the substance, they're all closer together. And yet now on the rhetoric, Trump has backed himself into this like rageful, unreasonable corner. OK, let's uh, end that topic there. We have a Slate Plus segment for all of you lucky Slate. Not lucky. You're not lucky Slate members, Plus members. You are people who've acted in your own lives to benefit yourselves by joining Slate Plus. And as a result of that action, you get to hear our bonus segment. And today's bonus segment, we're going to talk about America's infrastructure crisis and my plan to solve it. Oh, I can't wait. Well, it's not much of a plan. Not much of a plan. But if uh, you want to get that Slate Plus bonus segment and lots of other great Slate Plus goodies, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to sign up. This episode of the GabFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an Aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame. And I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. President Donald Trump is a racist. He has made that clear throughout his life. From the racial discrimination practiced by his real estate company to the vile comments he has made about Mexicans and a Mexican-American judge during the presidential campaign, his embrace of white supremacists, his repeated hateful comments about Muslims and Islam, derogatory comments about Nigerians and huts and Haitians with AIDS. Also, he keeps calling himself the least racist person, which is pretty much the number one signal that you are a racist, but that's an aside. In any case, last week brought this racism debate to a whole new stop on the subway line. His remarks in a meeting with congressional leaders and staff, notably Dick Durbin, a Senate Democrat, about Haitians and Africans from shithole countries and the need to keep them out of the United States have outraged everybody, outraged people so much that many people are denying that he said them or trying to spin them to make it seem as though he didn't say what he apparently did say. So, Emily, first of all, this fight has been going on for several days. This all happened right after we taped last week's show. So this this shithouse, shithole controversy has been going on a long time. Can I just say that Thursday morning, I don't know, maybe it's true about every day of the week, but I now feel like Thursday morning is this special vulnerability, which is like we say goodbye to each other and then, some and then crazy something. Cra- yeah, no, I know. We, when we come out, it's I, I, I guarantee you like the the 
Iceland will have invaded the United States and we come out. (laughs) That definitely will have happened. In any case, so there's been a lot of litigation about all the language here. But is the problem with what Trump did in that meeting the language or the sentiment expressed? What? Thank you. Yes. God love you. You've gone right to the heart of the matter, which – Took a long time. I'm sorry, Emily. You may have had an answer all corked up. No, I want to hear dri- what you. I'm excited that you're so excited. Dri- I am up a wall and down the other side about this, which is the absolute hyperfixation on the word has occluded the crucial question here, which is the sentiment behind it. And, and this who shot John on what kind of word was used and the denials of the word and people saying, well, there was rough language. It, forget the word. The crucial thing is, did the president lump people into these groups by where they came from, specifically countries where people have brown skin, uh, and Norway, a country where almost everyone doesn't, um, and then therefore, is that rec- does that tell us something about his worldview, which then attaches to a pattern in history, which includes, I don't know if you included this litany, um, David, the fact that the president was the, America's chief birther, questioning the legitimacy of the first African-American president. And this is not an isolated instant and represents a, to use a trademark GabFest word, habit of mind of the president of the United States, who is the president of an entire country. And honing in on that and whether this sentiment is what is driving him is, to me, far more important than the word. The word is, of course, symbolic of and emblematic of, but one wouldn't want to lose the Keep take the eye off the ball by focusing too much on the word. And that's why when I questioned Tom Cotton, senator from Arkansas, who was in the meeting, uh, it took a long time to get past the word, which he says he didn't hear, and, and say, yes, but did you hear the sentiment? And finally, after a few rounds, he said, and this this is a secondary conversation, but it's important, he said he didn't hear the sentiment expressed at all, which is a much further defense of the president than than anybody else who simply says, well, he didn't use that word. So Senator Cotton has really put himself out way out on a limb because Lindsey Graham issued a statement. He's never said anything about the word or not, but he issued a statement after this became an issue and said, I told the president in America is an idea and that where you come from doesn't matter. In other words, Lindsey Graham affirms, as does Dick Durbin, as do others now, affirms that this was the sentiment. This was what the president was saying, forgetting and leaving aside the word that he used. Right, right. I'm all for that. So, Emily, the nicest, given what John has just said, I think the only possible justifiable spin is the the line, which is we sh- he shouldn't be taken literally. He's, he's an impulsive person. Everything he says is unfiltered. He always says awful, hateful things. And this is just his id. And when he praises Norway, what he is really praising is educated immigrants. It's a shorthand for educated immigrants. It's a bad shorthand, but it's a shorthand for educated immigrants. And when he derides Haiti and the entire continent of Africa, it's a shorthand for uneducated immigrants. And we want more of the former and less of the latter. Is that a, is there anything, is that, does that, does that excuse him in the slightest? Is that, is that a defensible position? If you, if you grant him that that's what he intended? No, I don't think so. I mean, it's so overwhelmed by the racial overtones of this. And it was such a wounding, cruel, hateful way to characterize these countries. And the sort of elevation of Norway, which, you know, I think to a lot of people is like the most blonde and blue eyed stereotype you can possibly have. All of that is inexcusable. And I I also just feel like What Tom Cotton and Senator Perdue and then the secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, like the somersaults they were executing in order to try to either say that Trump hadn't meant what he clearly did mean or pretend it didn't happen. There was something really hard to watch about all of that. And it's often what I find the most difficult. So, John, I think you're absolutely right to focus on the sentiment. To me, the sentiment is clear and a huge problem for all the reasons I just said. And then to watch, you know, members of Congress and members of the administration, like, line up to implicate themselves in this and excuse it, it it just makes it so much worse. It's like the definition of complicity and of normalizing this kind of strain of American politics. And there was a fair amount of media coverage that went in the same direction of like, oh, Trump just says what everyone else thinks. Like, well, 
<laughs> that's not we don't want to like I don't want to know that that's what everyone else thinks. And there are so many better ways to surface people's racism or their fears about the other than like these incredibly crude sorts of moments. I don't think they're like a useful reckoning for America. I think they're just like an out-of-control racist in the White House. We should note that the president had just met with the Norwegian prime minister before the meeting. So he Norway was in was in the brain in his pa- mind. was in the brain pan for 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 that reason which is just an extra piece of information. I, I'm not adding that piece of evidence to one argument or another, but to David's I think strong articulation of the best defensible case of the president what weakens that or the rebuttal to that though a little bit is that that I think there there are instances in which the president uses a kind of shorthand which is imprecise and um, and that you have to take him not literally but seriously fine except that in the room at the time it was then adjudicated and um, and Lindsey Graham had this impassioned response to the president. So that if it were simply clumsy language, right. the the sentiment would have been figured out in the course of the ensuing debate with Lindsey Graham. And we should also pause to note that 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 there's also this is just wrong on the facts that the president is wrong on the facts in this case, in that the immigrants that we are getting, whether from Haiti or from many different countries in Africa, are better educated than native born Americans they are more economically successful when they get here than native-born Americans, incredibly hardworking as well, and represent, certainly to me and to to many many of us who have encountered these immigrants in, in the world, the very best of what we can be, in addition to simply helping the country grow and develop. And so it is, it is not enough that he be racist, not enough that he express ideas that, that are against our very national creed, but also... It, it's just not true. That's maddening to me. Can, Go ahead. John. Can I just add one other thing about the about the relationship between those who are defending the president, forgetting what he said purposefully or otherwise trying to massage what was said in the room? I thought jo- Jonah Goldberg in the National Review wrote a, uh, what I found was, was a very uh, compelling case for why this was um, why this was a problem and included it from the conservative or Republican standpoint, which is that if you're Tom Cotton and you're pushing a bill that w- that wants to increase merit-based immigration, you have a conservative approach to immigration that's based on what you believe are sound policy arguments, by then defending the president's um, views here, you are lumping your immigration views, which are not uh, you know which you th- which are based on your read of the policy you're basing it in the more in into the sort of trumpism um and ruining your own you're not only just putting yourself in a bad place by potentially opening yourself up to the to the charge that you're not telling the truth but you're also undermining your additional policy views because you'll be lumped in with the president here when uh you you may not share his same motivations emily do you think this is a case where it matters, as in probably in most cases, that there are basically no black people who work for Trump and the White House. I, yes. I think he probably if, if there had been an African-American staffer in the room or someone of African descent in the room or Haitian descent in the room, there's no way he would have said what he said. I'm not sure about that, but I think that the fact that there are no black people around him is indicative of this larger problem and adds to it. And it was significant that one of the ways in which we got confirmation of what happened in this meeting, both the language and the sentiment, was through Republican Senator Tim Scott, who's black and who had clearly been talking to Lindsey Graham and others at the meeting about what happened. So nothing I have learned in this entire week about this meeting has made me feel I understand Trump better. I already knew he was a racist. I already knew he had no empathy for people. Uh, I already knew he, you know, he spouted whatever nonsense the last person in the room told him. And therefore, w- would we be, have been better off not spending, having spent this week talking about this? I don't think we can ignore it, but I think it gets too much attention. I had sort of weirdly this week was checked out for a couple of days and I just wasn't paying attention to anything Trump was tweeting. And so last night in preparation for the show, I just went back and looked at like the last three or four or even five days of tweets. And it was funny. They they seemed 
more unhinged than usual read all in a row when I didn't even realize like that they had happened along the way. Um, And it just made me realize that when you take your eye off the ball bouncing, it actually like provides more clarity rather than less. I do feel like there's a lot of wasted energy in it. But on the other hand, you do have a situation in which the things he is saying, I mean, this is in part a reason why there's not any movement on DACA or on comprehensive immigration reform. So I think it's it's a part of the chaos. Can you explain that, John? Because I don't I mean, I you're right, but I don't totally understand why. Is it just that he becomes radioactive? Well, I think, well, it's, you know, we're, it's a bit of a chicken and egg here because one of the reasons I mean, I think Democrats would say, wait a minute, why are you voting for something supported by a president who says these kinds of things? Then you have Republicans defending the president, like Tom Cotton, who basically said that Dick Durbin was a habitual liar. So why are Republicans making a deal with Democrats led by Dick Turbin, who's a, who you've just called a habitual liar? So in response to this moment, you've had people escalate to a way uh, that might – first of all, you just have to clean up and then also might imperil a final agreement because you've just said things about the other person that would seem to be irrevocable. There's a lot of business the executive branch has to do, and this isn't the right way to run a railroad. It's not leading to good policy. It's injuring the way people think about their country. I mean, there's a lot of effects here that are a part of a larger story, maybe not about this specific one. All right. You've persuaded me that we should have talked about it. So last question to you, Emily. Why do you think it is that Trump feels no need to sign on to our national creed about openness and diversity and welcoming people? It, it is unusual. That is something that has that Republican politicians and Democratic politicians have almost universally subscribed to, at least for the past, you know, forty or fifty years. Why is he so allergic to it? And do you think it once he's gone, Republicans will all come back to it? They'll try. I mean, he's mainlining his base. Like we can't forget his initial announcement. The first thing he did as a candidate for president was to call Mexicans rapists. Like this is been integral to his appeal to why he was a distinctive candidate from the beginning. And he is super attuned to that base. I mean, you were saying earlier, those are the approval ratings, or maybe John was saying this, those are the approval ratings he looks at and cares about. Those are the people who he can count on remaining with him. And I think he imagines himself not a racist for whatever reason. And so then he sort of gives himself license to make these really divisive appeals uh, an important part of his core political identity. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. There has been a vigorous, angry, contentious, fascinating discussion of an article published this week about a really bad hookup between Aziz Ansari, the comedian and actor, and a woman who goes by the pseudonym of Grace, this story, which is kind of like a real live version of Cat Person. um, The New Yorker fiction story. Was told from Grace's point of view on a website called Babe.net by a writer named Katie Way. And it recounted an evening, a date, a date that began with Ansari and a much younger woman, an adult, however, um, that ended back at Ansari's apartment with Ansari constantly and energetically pushing Grace towards sex of various kinds and Grace feeling uncomfortable resisting, sometimes saying no, sometimes sort of being more acquiescent, but but just being deeply uncomfortable the whole time and leaving disgusted and appalled by the whole situation and calling Ansari out uh, in a text later, prompting an apology from him. The piece has ignited the most discussion, I think, of any of the Me Too scandal since the original Harvey Weinstein story broke. And it's exposed a kind of generational divide, or maybe it has. I don't know. We'll, we'll get into that. Um, so, Emily, how would you define 
the camps in the discussion of this piece, which I, I'm just kind of assuming that everyone who's listening to the show has probably read it or at least read enough about it to know what what's it. Well, is. I think one of the big dividing lines here is between what I would maybe call liberationist feminists and protectionist feminists. So and and to some degree, this tracks generational divides. So the denouncers of grace prominently include Caitlin Flanagan in The Atlantic and Barry Weiss in The New York Times. And lots of other women are, you know, talking in ways that I think line up with their views. And it's basically, look, this is a story about really bad sex. And Grace should have gotten herself the hell out of that apartment or at least, like, stuck up for herself more in the moment. And to imagine that a woman who was free to leave at every moment and, in fact, when she did say no, I'm sorry, backed off at least for the for that um, period of, of Grace's account of this hookup, that that shows that women need to figure out how to stand up for themselves. And if there's a problem here, it's that frozen paralysis and the idea that Women are being constantly taught and internalizing the need to please in these situations. And so the real feminist point of view here is one of agency, and that is totally lacking from Grace's account. And that publishing the story and and defending Grace merely, like, adds to that bad trend. And then the other camp is one that says, like, and Jessica Valenti embodied this, like, this might sound like a normal sexual encounter, but a lot of women are not okay with that anymore. And we need to move to yes means yes. I mean, this story, I think part of why I talk off so much is it perfectly captures the tension between no means no, which didn't really happen clearly, or at least not consistently. And yes means yes, which didn't happen at all, because Ansari doesn't seem to have ever said, like, are you okay with this? So I think that's like a really important and interesting discussion to be had. To me, it was familiar from a lot of accounts on college campuses of accusations of date rape, but that then other people push back and say, like, well, are you really complaining about clear no signals you gave in the moment versus regret you felt afterward. And I was really glad to have a huge public airing and discussion about this because I think it's useful. And even if many people, myself included, don't think Ansari did anything criminal here, his behavior was like gross. And we do want to try to school young men to be much more sensitive than he was in the moment. So that seems like an important conversation. I don't know, though, if that justifies a pseudonymous account that like, humiliates um, Ansari publicly. I, I feel really mixed up about that. Do you guys think that Grace's story should not have been published without her name on it? I began from the position that that the story did not justify the punishment being done to Ansari, that it was a form of revenge porn, as someone else pointed out, um, that it's very salacious. It really, Exposed you know, really makes humiliates him and embarrasses him even though his behavior is clearly not criminal and it's not harassing he's not her supervisor it's a it's a very bad hookup and he behaved badly if her account is to be believed but i have certain i have come around totally to the idea that the this is worth it the discussion it's generated has been incredibly interesting I, to me it's been the most interesting set of discussions that we've had in the whole me too time it gets to things that i think lots of people face all the time i mean many you know some people have bosses who harass them or who've been and certainly all too many people have been sexually assaulted but almost everybody who has had sex has had a bad sexual encounter of one one sort or another and so it's it affects lots of us i don't think he's been ritually sacrificed i don't think his career right, is over right. I agree. um in a way that that other people who other people's career i think people are being pretty sophisticated about it and subtle and and it's and it's provoked a really deep and interesting set of conversations. So I think it's been really useful and and I'm glad it's happened. What about you, John? Yeah, I mean, I, I felt, I, I feel like I liked Emily's teeing up of the issue in the kind of, um, I mean, so basically the difference between no means no and yes means yes and that, but the way it's been But affirmative consent is so hard. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm not saying. It's I'm so not saying hard. That, like, how do we get I to think that? This sure, sure, sure. And I'm not saying that this, like, no, I'm not saying this tells us what the final answer to that is, but in the the way she framed it, which is like, well, there are two different points of view here, and then you have the debate. The way in which I've seen, and I must admit that a lot of what I've seen has been either on social media or in just conversations where people tend to be militantly on one side or the other 
I guess I always prefer recognizing that I think you can have very strong opinions of both sides without um, thinking the other person on the other side is some like supervillain. And there's been a little too much supervillaining in the way this is being discussed uh, for my taste because then I, I think totally it just becomes. Agree with that. I was talking about related issues a week or so ago with some friends, and one person in the conversation accused me of being a slitherer, by which she meant that, like, I was arguing whatever against whoever was the And I realized that there is something about this issue that does turn me into a slitherer in the sense that, you know, when I'm reading Caitlin Flanagan and Barry Weiss, I'm identifying with them and thinking, like, yes, I do believe that female agency is an incredibly important tenet of feminism. And then I read younger women sympathizing with the Grace point of view in the story, and I remember my own, like, paralyzed self who was, like, pretty incapable of saying no in a way that was not helpful to my sexual experiences frequently when I was younger. And so it just seems to me like there's... Something to be said both for no means no as a clear, much more practical, attainable rule and for yes means yes as like an aspirational standard of behavior that even if you're not asking for permission every step of the way, like which okay is awkward and and I think for a lot of people involves like too much communicating during sex and feels like just not sexy. Um, even if you're not going to do that, asking people to, like, be attuned to nonverbal cues is a good idea, even if, like, okay, yes, you're yeah. going to blow it sometimes. Just the yeah. idea that you should try is yeah. important. And sorry, I'm ranting. But one thing I thought was so astute in Grace's account was at the end she says that Aziz Ansari was acting like a horny 18-year-old, like, being rough. And I thought that was right. And I wonder if you're Aziz Ansari, you're a celebrity – you would assume that some young woman who came back to your room and took all her clothes off, like, was down for whatever you were down for. And you wouldn't be paying a whole lot of attention, especially if you were drinking, to what she actually was expressing nonverbally in the moment. And that's, like, not great. It doesn't mean that Aziz Ansari, like, should be exiled. But, like, it's not the standard of behavior I want for my own sons. Yeah, so, okay. That was very beautifully said, Emily. I think – I mean, this gets to, to the piece that I found most, um, you know, the many – very good pieces I read about this. And I'm like you and like Trump, which is that the last thing I read, I agree with. Uh, but uh, the, the piece which said, which said what we want is more empathy, that in all these sexual encounters, you just want to be able to read the room better. And fun, right? And, and pleasure right. Yeah. and desire, like, right. not and just one person's desire. Yeah, se right. Sexual, there's, where there's mutual enthusiasm is the best kind of sex. And so like, just like aspire to that. And my advice to Aziz Ansari is like, Aziz, you know, you're 34, you're still pretty young. There's plenty of time for sex with someone who's not going to be enthusiastic about it. That's <laughs> like, that is what marriage is for. Oh, like, come on. Don't that, portray marriage in such bleak terms. No, Have you I'm been reading enough to Esther Perel lately to come to a better uh, No, but I, better I'm, ki I'm kidding, but I'm also like, like par partly I'm kidding, but I'm also not kidding. Like the point of marriage is that you can use the deep foundation of love and of like all this connection to like every sexual encounter when you're married doesn't have to be, uh, you know, like a, a, a session, uh, you know, sprawled naked across the apartment in every room, you know, every orifice experimented with like there's that, the, you know, everyone bubbling with joy about it. Like marital sex has all this variety in it. And I think the ex there's this expectation <laughs> like that the. Like Sorry. the expectation. <laughs> I just imagine you in the in the fruits and vegetables aisle at the Kroger. Keep, carry on. Yeah. <laughs> Keep um, going. You're on an excellent tear here. Be no, but us. I really believe, like that. You know wh why <laughs> you're going to have B minus sex. Like it's going to definitely happen to you, Aziz. Why have it now when you don't have to? When you can like find you know find people who are going to be enthusiastic and and it's going to be mutually satisfying for everybody. So don't like, you think chill. though that like the answer to that is that this this instance of hookup culture was just so sterile and yucky. Like one of the things right. that struck me about it is that like ten minutes in, they're both going down on each other with apparently like very perfunctory no pleasure. I just was like. There's no part of me that read that account and was like, right. oh, I really wish I was 22 or 34. That sounds so great. Actually, you know what? Well, there Actually, may be I, some sorry. observer um, – there may be some Heisenberg principle going on here in the observation and observed and – Wait, mean, wait. Can you tell me more about what you mean by the Heisenberg principle? 
I guess my point is, Emily, there may, <laughs> there may have been. A, well, no, it may have been different than exactly as it was detailed in that. I'm not talking about the who consent question. I think that any of us describing a situation long after it has happened, and particularly in that kind of situation, where clearly, where it's always hard to figure out. I mean, you, you're not exactly thinking in super analytical terms. Then when you sit down and rewrite it, something is lost in the observation subsequent to the moment. And so recognizing that general principle, there's a possibility that in this case it could it could rule. I guess it could be the other way as well. It might have been even worse than she describes from a purely passion standpoint, again, leaving aside this question of consent and who said what when, there's a chance that it might be somewhat um, different from from what you would have seen if you had, you know, closed circuit television footage of it. Yeah, I don't know. I think that I d- totally agree that he had a completely different subjective experience of it. I think we have evidence for that. But I would imagine you would see on her face what, she, yeah. uh, well, I mean, we don't know. but <laughs> We don't know. I think we're... Right? Like, you could imagine a sort of blank-faced sure. lack of, yeah, yeah, anyway. Yeah, yeah. I do think, though, Emily, to your point about if you were 22 or 34, that one reason why there is an element of generational hostility in this, in that the the critics of Grace have tended to be older, is that we're on the other side of all of this. And there's some element of jealousy, like, that these young people are having all this drama, and what all they're doing about it is whining about it. And and there must be some element of 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 jealousy in there. Yeah. And judgment. Right. Because I think I don't know. I mean, I've talked to a lot of young people, especially young women, I suppose, about sex in the last few years. And it seems pornified in a lot of ways. And mm-hmm. things seem to happen in this like mechanical, very fast way right. that to me for a first encounter just sounds like forget romantic. It doesn't even sound like full of desire. And so I think there's an, you're right, maybe there's some jealousy, but I think there's also some recoiling that's going on. Right, right. That's that both, yes, good point. I, I totally agree. I, I have one final question. So one line of conservative concern about the Me Too movement in general and the Ansari episode as a as a emblem of it is that there's now this phenomenon of oldsters like us complaining that you can't even flirt anymore. You can't buy a young lady a drink. You can't stick your hand up the skirt of a college sophomore you just met. Oh, that is just such a drag. Um, it's so it's so hard out there for the boys now. <laughs> do you do you guys think there's anything to that? No. 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 Do you? No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> if you're sticking I mean, your hand up fewer I, I do, skirts, but, I, but I don't, I'm not out defend. dating. I don't know. Me, I mean, I don't know whether but, whether young men feel fraught and are afraid to say anything to people. But I, I do know. I do want to defend you, David, who I think once raised that in a conversation that we were having simply to raise it and wonder whether some people will read it this way. I think some people will read it that way. I think some people will have this this concern and so i think raising it and and even raising it if even to dismiss it i think is a perfectly reasonable part of this conversation all right let us go to cocktail chatter when you're attempting to buy an attractive young person a drink at a bar and chat them up what drink you don't need to say what drink you're going to buy but what are you going to chat them up about emily can I do two chatters? So my You're first You're going to buy two drinks for that attractive young <laughs> two, person? Two drinks. These are like really have nothing to do with each other. Okay. So my first chatter is actually a request and a confession. I have gotten late. I know this I'm very late arrival. Semi-obsessed with The Leftovers, the TV show, which I know is over. But the fact that it's over is allowing me to binge watch it to the detriment of all the other important things I'm supposed to be doing. I'm looking for good things to read about this show, and I know I should go read the Tom Parada novel as well, and I will, but I'm just curious, like, because nobody I know is watching this, my family is totally disinterested in this show. I have no one to process it with. So Should um, I watch it? I don't I know. Love the novel. It's not that it's great. I mean, it's interesting. It's definitely sticking with me, and I am very um, susceptible to dystopia right now, and it sort of has enough interesting dystopia in it. Yeah, would you watch it? And like, t- if you don't love it, you can quit, but I would love it if you would check it out for me um, or with me. And then my more substantive chatter is um, I read this really interesting piece by Adam Minter in Bloomberg View called No One Wants Your Lo- Used Clothes Anymore, and it is about 
the problem of what happens to clothes in donation bins and how they have been processed into a new kind of cloth called shoddy, which was made into like low-cost garments, in particular blankets for disaster relief operations. And there's like a huge shoddy operation in this particular city in India called Panipat. But what Adam Minter was writing about is the idea that now manufacturers in China have figured out how to make new blankets for almost the same low cost. And that's like ruining the market for all these clothes we throw away. I always wonder what happened to those clothes in donation bins. And I know that there's a sorting process. And obviously, like, they're not all ending up in Panipat, India. But as someone who is constantly worrying about what happens to all the garbage, I mean, that part of sex lies and videotape will be with me forever because I am that person. This story um, interested me. Wow. That is interesting. John. You sound so surprised, as if no. like an interesting <laughs> No, I, I, no, I'm sorry. It, it's it that that is a kind of story that I genuinely fascinating, and I I didn't mean it to sound either like wow, Emily said something interesting. No, no, what a surprise! It was more like I was genuinely. I'm mag- I'm just looking at in my mind's eye at Panapat India. I'm visualizing what Panapat India. There were some like. cool photos, and I'm seeing too. those blankets. Like I know the, exactly that kind of blanket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Okay. Sorry. Uh. uh John, you're buying a drink for an attractive young person. You don't have to. You're not doing that. You don't have to. No, you're buying a, a drink for I was gonna say, for, uh, for uh, the lovely Mrs. Dickerson. Thank you. What are you going to chatter with her about? Well, I uh, actually, it's funny. This came from the lovely Mrs. Dickerson. We both follow somebody on Twitter whose name is uh, Atticus Goldfinch. Those of you who read To Kill a Mockingbird will... Uh, recognize that name and his, his actually his picture is Gregory Peck from To Kill a Mockingbird. He is often engaged in uh, Twitter political debates. He is, um, I think he lists himself as an ex-Republican. I think he's a pretty stalwart, um, never Trumper. But anyway, he's a thoughtful, impassioned Twitter uh, political debater. Anyway, he posted something this week in which he writes, I want to talk about the kindness of Twitter and how this week I've learned there's plenty of humanity still left here. We found out suddenly last weekend that my daughter has a congenital deformity in her throat and will need surgery. He then tells the story of taking his daughter in to be looked at and they moved her right away to the pediatric ward. She's having surgery. And he mentioned this and was then totally flooded by the people who have followed him with whom he's fought, with donations, people telling their stories, um, because donations in part because this is going to, you know, totally knock them off their, you know, his wife has to stop working. It's going to cost a great deal of money. Um, and and he just basically posts on and on about the various responses, and he's re- reposting all the things people sent. Um, and to me, it was such a, uh, you know, Twitter and social media is um, can be so awful, like constantly. And so if you have ever felt that way, this thread of all of the direct messages he's posting and the other responses people sent him, just the kind of um, rush of humanity in response to this and in response to him um, is a nice counterbalance to what we get every day with those of us who, uh, who tend to follow people who talk about politics on Twitter. All right. That's nice. My chatter is about a wonderful novel I just read. Ooh, it's called, what? It's called This Could Hurt. It's by Jillian Medoff. And it is the most unlikely subject for a novel. It is about the HR department at a boring and failing company. And it's about the lives of the five people who work in this HR department, their careers, their work relationships, their approach to work, their ambitions, nothing much happens, but it's an incredibly funny and incredibly humane book. And it is, I think, maybe the best book I have ever read about what work means, about how to do it better, about how to manage people, about how to be a good colleague, about the intrapersonal relationships of an office. If you read, and then we came to the end, the Joshua Ferris novel mm. about yeah, I really uh, like that a book. failing advertising agency, this mm-hmm. is very much in that vein. It's that intimate and detailed and precise about work life. But I think it's better. I think it's a better book. And it's just, it's good hearted and it's funny. And um, I 
haven't read something with as much pleasure in in six months. Oh, I can't great. wait to read that. Hmm. By the way, uh, Paul really liked version control. Oh, good. Yeah. I don't still, I'm like 100 pages in, I still don't understand what it's about, but apparently it's worth continuing. It's a great version control. is great. <laughs> yeah. This could hurt by Jillian Medoff. That is our show for today. The Political Gab Fest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Izzy Road. Izzy is sick. Please wish Izzy a quick recovery. Izzy, recover quickly. Follow us on Twitter at SlateGabFest. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.